0: There are many ideas people have about how we get saved. Is God in control of the whole process? Or do people have some say in what they believe? There's a story in Acts chapters 13 and 14 that some think speaks to the topic. But we may not be understanding the passage's ancient context. And if that's the case, we may have some rethinking to do. Welcome to episode 56, Those Who Had Been Appointed to Life. This is Greg Hall, and you've made it back to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. And I know, after that last one, you said, I'm never going to listen to that again. So thanks for giving me just one more try. I'll try not to disappoint. Before we get into the text today. I need to let you know that I'm beginning to build my street team for the January release of the Rethinking Rest book. And I'm looking for a few people that would be willing to do some stuff. Uh, Number one, read an advanced copy of the book. And after that, write some reviews and share them online. Oh, and also, these people on the street team, they're gonna get some cool rethinking swag. Now, other people might just call these cheap free giveaways. But that's not what we're calling them. We're calling them cool rethinking swag. And if that sounds interesting at all to you, just need you to head on over to rethinkingscripture.com, hit that connect button, and just let me know that you'd like to know more about that opportunity. I'd be happy to let you know what it looks like, what you'd be committing to if you decided to do it, and then you can get back to me. The release of that book, it's in January, and that seems like a long way off, but with the holidays, it's going to sneak up on us really fast, and I'm looking forward to getting that book out and in people's hands. Well, today we're looking into Acts chapters 13 and 14. These chapters begin the progression in Acts, where the focus is taken away from the land of Israel. Luke has spent a lot of time focusing on the happenings around the temple city and those who live in the land of promise. But now the trajectory changes, and we begin to see what happens outside of Israel. And I just want to remind you of a couple things before we get started on this journey outside the promised land. Let's remember back to the first chapter in the book, specifically Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It's when Jesus was still around for the 40 days after the resurrection, and he gives this instruction to the disciples. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So that's the progression that Jesus gave to the movement. Jerusalem, all Judea, then Samaria, then the remotest part of the earth. And remember, that's how Luke has constructed his story as well. In the first 12 chapters, we've hung out in Jerusalem. We saw Stephen murdered, and that started the scatter of the witness to other places. It visited Samaria in chapter 8, then Luke presented three road narratives, the Ethiopian going back to Africa, Saul headed to Damascus, Peter traveling the road to Caesarea. And remember, those three road narratives represent the three sons of Noah in the TNO map. We discussed that briefly back in episode 42. So in chapters 13 and 14, we now enter the remotest part of the earth parts of the story. And it's often presented that the gospel message first visits the Jews, and then it makes its way to the Gentiles. But as we've discussed, that version of the story is just a bit too simplistic. It's not as neat and tidy as all the Jews lived in Israel and all the Gentiles lived in the remotest parts of the earth. In the first century, Israel is certainly the land of the Jews. No question about that. But they are an occupied territory. There are foreigners everywhere within the land. The Romans are occupying space. The Samaritans have their place. The Gentiles are in and through the land of Israel everywhere. So while the testimony of Jesus is being spread in the early chapters, the Gentiles are a part of that mix. And as we've seen, the testimony of Jesus didn't wait until chapter 12 to leave the land. Those visiting Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 eventually left and went back home. And they took the testimony with them before Paul was even converted. The eunuch took the Jesus story to Africa. The message was already in Damascus when Paul went to try and squelch it there. And not only that. But word was getting out of the land even before the Pentecost event. In Acts chapters 18 and 19, we will be introduced to Apollos and a group of John the Baptist followers that have been spreading an incomplete version of the Jesus story outside of Israel for years before the resurrection even happened. So it's important to understand that chapter 12 certainly begins a new phase in the story within the book of Acts. But the word has been spreading for some time. And it's important for us to understand as readers that God has been working in circles well outside the scope of the biblical narrative. Well, all that said, when Paul and Barnabas begin their journeys, the land into which they take the gospel has already had some amount of exposure. In other words, the gospel pomp has already been primed. The synagogues in all of these cities have been studying the Old Testament promises of a Messiah. The Old Testament saints have already come to a saving faith in the one true God, and incomplete bits and pieces of the Jesus story have already been spreading. The remotest parts of the earth already have a lot of the story. So the stories that we read about in the remaining chapters of Acts, we should expect to see people that already have a saving faith in God. And they will be mixed in standing side by side with people that don't have a clue about what God's doing. We will see warm receptions and violent responses. We will see a dual response to the gospel. And those differences give us some indication that God has already been at work in those areas. Paul is not walking into neutral ground for centuries God has already been preparing the remotest parts of the earth with the gospel. These two chapters, chapters 13 and 14, cover the events of the first missionary journey. We will see Paul take four total journeys, uh, this one in 13 and 14. And then he's going to go back to Jerusalem and visit with the leaders there. The second missionary journey begins at the end of chapter 15 and goes into chapter 18. Then he goes back and visits the leaders in Jerusalem again. Then chapters 18 through 21 cover his third journey, after which he, you guessed it, he heads back to Jerusalem And then he is arrested and held for a while, which eventually leads to his fourth journey to Rome for his trial there. And that's how the book ends, with Paul in Rome awaiting his trial. So that's what lies ahead in our journey through this book. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the responses that Paul and Barnabas received on their first missionary journey. As we've discussed, we should expect a dual response to the gospel. And our modern-day assumption is that Paul is preaching to maybe spiritually neutral people, and anyone that accepts his message is coming to an initial saving faith in God. But we've discussed all of that. Those are simplistic expectations that assume the biblical narrative is the only one in which God is working. So, let's take a dive into these chapters and pay close attention to the way Luke describes those who listen to and accept the gospel. So, if you're not familiar with this, in the places that Paul visits on these journeys, he will often give a speech in the synagogues that outlines the history of the Jews. It's in these talks that Paul is reminding them of the backstory that predicted the Messiah, and then he tells them about Jesus. The content of his history lesson in chapter 13 has some very interesting attributes. He talks about Israel's time in Egypt and their 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. Then he mentions the judges and two of the kings, Saul and David. He seems to cover most of the bases pretty well in Israel's history. But then he mentions John the Baptist, and not just in passing— Johnny Boy gets two whole verses in his talk. And just to compare, King Saul only gets one verse, verse 21. King David only gets one verse as well, verse 22. Jesus originally only gets one verse as well, verse 23. But then John the Baptist gets two verses. And it may not seem like much just as we're talking about it, but as you read through, you would begin to notice wow, we're getting a lot of information about John the Baptist and his ministry. So let's just ask the question, why do you suppose it is that John the Baptist gets more time than Egypt, the wandering, Saul, and David? Well, it's probably because John the Baptist had a recent ministry that thrived for quite some time. John had been tasked with preparing the way, And it was a period of time where he was gathering together the believing remnant of Old Testament saints, both Jew and Gentile, and letting them know that God was up to something, that something big was coming. So lots of believers from out of town who had visited Jerusalem during his ministry heard his message of preparation and then returned to their homes outside of the land. There are lots of people, who through faith were clinging to the words of John the Baptist. So here, in his sermon, Paul spends an appropriate amount of time speaking to those believers, reminding them specifically that John himself had said that he wasn't the Messiah, that there would be another one that was coming that would follow him. And then Paul gives his Messiah update. At the end of which, it says that he gets invited back to next week's synagogue service. So that's good. (laughs) And it also says that many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed them, followed Paul and his cohort. So in other words, Paul quickly developed a small band of groupies. And you can imagine what happens in the week that transpires between the Sabbaths. The groupies, the believers who received the gospel update that first weekend, those folks found all of their friends of faith, and they made sure that their friends were there for that second sermon the next week. But that's not all. The opposition also has a whole week to prepare, and they come in ready to try and refute all the claims, and that's what they try to do. And when that happens— On that second weekend, that's the time when Paul and Barnabas turned to the Gentiles. That's the way it's stated in the text. They turned to the Gentiles, meaning they're not going to be speaking to the Jewish crowd anymore in that place. They're going to take the message to a wider audience. They have spoken first in that Jewish setting. They identified their Jewish groupies from the first week's message. And then the opposition, with some time to organize, they take over the synagogue again. But the damage has been done. Those with true faith have heard and know that it's time to leave with Paul. So that's when they say, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And I suppose that we often think that there's just one response in the synagogue during Paul's journeys. And it's usually that last response, the one of the opposition, but it's often not the only response. There are always going to be at least some true believers in those synagogues, and that's exactly where you would expect to find them. And it's not their fault that the leadership is not able to hear the truth as well. So it's at this point in the story when Paul decides to leave the synagogue and turn to the Gentiles where the text says something very interesting. And it's this next statement that has become a huge source of controversy amongst modern-day theologians. Here, I'll just read it first and then try to explain the modern discussion a little bit. So in response to Paul turning to the Gentiles, Acts 13.48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And word there is the word logos, which we talked about in the last episode. Here, referring to the message given, not just Jesus himself. So there's an example of that. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And it's that statement, those who had been appointed to eternal life believed has become fodder for much debate between Calvinists and Arminians on the interpretation of this passage. It is one of the linchpin passages for the Calvinistic view of predestination, which says that the phrase appointed to eternal life, that that refers to God's preordination before time began. But our perspective would suggest that these were possibly Old Testament believers who had already been appointed to eternal life through faith in the promises of the Old Testament. So to illustrate along these lines and to kind of give you a feel for modern day discussions and how they go, I have found some commentary that shows what a contentious phrase this is in our modern discussion. First, some words from Toussaint out of the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, He's going to be representing the Calvinistic perspective. And again, if you're not familiar with these bigger theories and concepts of uh, salvation specifically, Calvinists generally understand the process of someone coming to faith as being ordained and caused by God himself. On the flip side of that, an Arminian is going to suggest that God has given humanity free will to make their own decisions. And while God may influence, he doesn't determine. And then, just to be honest, there's a whole lot of people in between those two. So lots of different opportunities to believe how you want. We're just going to take a look at specifically some comments from the two extremes on this particular passage. So from Toussaint. He says, the Gentiles, in this passage specifically, the Gentiles rejoiced in this turn of events, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And then he says, it's difficult to miss the doctrine of God's election here. The words, were appointed, come from the verb tasso, It's a military word meaning to arrange or to assign. Luke used it here to show that God's elective decree included Gentiles. So those words, uh, definitely coming from the Calvinist perspective, found another one from that same camp. Uh, It's from our favorite, Newman and Nida, the Handbook of the Acts of the Apostles. Listen to what they say. Those who have been chosen for eternal life is a phrase which occurs frequently in rabbinic literature. The meaning is clearly that those whom God had chosen became believers. And the translator must not attempt to weaken this meaning. They go on to say chosen for eternal life may thus be rendered as whom God has selected in order that they would have eternal life. They actually... (laughs) Newman and Nida actually suggest that the phrase could be rendered those whom God had selected in order that they would have eternal life. So one of the things I'm wanting to do in this process of sharing some of these commentaries is just show you what having a theory about salvation does when you go to the text and then read the text through that perspective. Oftentimes, what happens in the process, and this happens for everybody, so I'm not just picking on the Calvinists here, if you approach the text already with an idea what that text is going to say before you get there, it is much more likely that you're going to read exactly what you want to read within those lines. And it's possible that you might be missing an ancient context that you haven't considered before. Got a couple from a little more of a middle perspective that mentions free will and how that might also be involved. This is Gangle out of his Acts volume commentary. He says, whatever one's view on election or salvation, it is possible to avoid this doctrine, and he means the Calvinistic doctrine, in the pages of the New Testament. As we have noticed earlier, it runs hand in hand with the doctrine of free will. The harmonization of those two seemingly conflicting views exists only in the mind of a gracious God. He says, somehow, God chooses us while at the same time, from our point of view, we trust him. Well, for those of you that have been around the circle with these theories and doctrines before, you just recognize that as a Calvinistic response, trying to give some room for free will, but notice what he said there at the end and at the same time from our point of view that we trust him. That's what the Calvinists would say that want to talk about free will. It seems like we're making a decision, but really that's not the case. That's just our point of view. Polhill, Hill, in his Acts volume, says those who are appointed to eternal life. In this phrase, we encounter the same balance between human volition and divine providence, the same one that's found throughout the book of Acts. On their part, these Gentiles took an active role in believing and committing themselves to Christ, but it was in response to God's Spirit moving in them, convicting them, and appointing them for life. So breaking away from Pole Hill's comment there, again, it's an example of a Calvinist who believes that God's in total control, also trying to marry the idea that we as humans might have, or it might seem like we have some say in what we believe and how we believe it. And before I move on, I haven't even mentioned this before, what's the assumption that all of these commentators thus far have had? All of these are assuming that the people in Acts chapters 13 and 14, these Gentiles, they're coming to a brand new faith at that time. They assume that because these are Gentile people, that there's no chance they could be people of faith. And they ignore the process that Luke is careful to describe throughout his book. So, moving on, uh, not out of a commentary this time, but actually out of an article, a pretty specific article by Martin. I'll put a link in the show notes for all of these, by the way. Martin's article is, The Result of Paul's Preaching in Antioch, As Many As Were Ordained to Eternal Life Believed, Acts 13.48. That's the name of his article. It's out of the Reformed Baptist Theological Review. Most of the time, we say Reformed and Baptist together, we're talking Calvinistic view of salvation. Martin says this, Confronted with the same gospel on the same occasion by the same preacher, some, both Jews and Gentiles, believed. While others not only rejected the gospel, but also contradicted and blasphemed it. How shall these dramatically different responses be accounted for? Well, breaking away, just to start out, I love that he is showing that dual response. So back to Martin. Luke, in a very straightforward and unqualified way, in chapter 13, verse 48b, describes the evangelistic results in Antioch in remarkable terms, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There are several passages, he says, in Acts where Luke states that the sovereignly exercised power and grace of God was at work in bringing men to faith in Christ. He mentions chapter eleven twenty one, chapter sixteen fourteen, chapter eighteen verse twenty seven, and then he says Acts thirteen forty eight teaches the same doctrine. So more detail on thirteen forty eight. The underlying Greek text is unambiguous, meaning there's no question about it, right? Thirteen forty eight b contains two verbal expressions representing two actions. The relationship of these verbal ideas is indicated by their relative positions in the sentence and by the tenses. Believed is an aorist indicative, which most of you don't care about, but then he does a good job of explaining it here. Uh, Martin says, and that indicates an action completed in the past from the perspective of the writer. So, for example, from Luke's point of view, at the time he wrote Acts, these believers at Antioch had believed. That's what he says. The expression, were ordained, indicates an action which has been completed prior to the main verb in the sentence. In this case, prior to them believing. He goes on to say, By using these two verbs, Luke teaches that the believers at Antioch believed, past action from Luke's point in time, having been ordained to eternal life, a completed action, antecedent, or prior to, their act of believing. And then he says, There is no legitimate way to translate Acts 13.48b so as to make the two concurrent in time. In other words, so that believing and the ordaining occur at the same moment. Or to reverse their relative positions in time. In other words, as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. You can't switch those up. He says, recognizing this, without exception, the translators of the major English versions follow the unambiguous grammar of the original. And then he gives examples from several different versions of English translations. King James, ASV, RSV, all says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Uh, NASB, New King James, ESV, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. NIV, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. NEB, all those who were marked out for eternal life became believers. And a couple other versions that say, and those who had been chosen for eternal life became believers, and as many as had been destined for eternal life became believers. Well, just in reading all of those different English versions, I hope that you're able to see how somebody's theology can sneak into an English version of the Bible. Although the verbs are in the right spot, and that's his point in sharing all of those, the way their are have different nuances that bring the translator's perspective into the text. Martin follows that up with this statement. All of these versions support the view that Luke is teaching the doctrine of predestination. Let me say that again. All of these versions, these English versions of the Bible, support the view that Luke is teaching the doctrine of predestination. In other words, that behind the act of man's believing lies the foreordaining decision of God. And then he just points out, many, of course, take issue with this view. So, breaking away from Martin, I'm not sure if you heard what just happened. When we study Scripture, we bring all of our baggage with us. And in my estimation, Martin here does a very good job of breaking down the grammar of the passage. He rightly identifies the order of events. Those that believe Paul's message had already, prior to Paul's visit to their city, been appointed to eternal life. I think he got that right then here's what everyone does they leave the context of that text behind and they jump into our modern theological disputes about how free will and predestination work they bring the grammar directly into the calvinistic arminian debate as if calvin and arminius were there listening to paul's talk but that's not the way it happened calvin came along centuries later And there is more to the original context that our modern discussion fails to consider. And here it is. We assume the ancient text is speaking directly to our modern situation, but it's not. It only speaks to the ancient context. And no matter how inspired the text is, it is unfair of us to think that the author's In this case, Luke could anticipate how Calvin would develop his understanding of salvation centuries later. Now listen, as best we can, we need to leave the text in its ancient context and try to determine the questions they would have been asking and answering. And it's in that context, that ancient one, that there was a situation involving the salvation of individuals. And it was a unique time in all of history— It was a situation that is not replicated in modern times, and it does not apply to modern discussions. But it's that context that we're not considering that can and should help shape our understanding of how God works even today. When Paul spoke throughout his missionary journeys, he would have been introduced to people who had previously been appointed to eternal life. Not through some choice of God at the beginning of time, but through hearing and believing various renditions of God's gospel message throughout the years. Their faith may not have been based on the entire message that we have now, but it would have been a saving faith for them. And when Paul came to town with the important update of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension— those that had already been appointed to eternal life through faith naturally believed the rest of the story. That's the ancient context that our modern theological cage matches just don't allow us to understand. We come to believe a system and then we allow, no, we long for that theological framework to determine what the text must be saying. It's time to rethink that whole process. We must let the text speak only to its ancient context. And then, and only then, ask if that even applies to our modern circumstances. So as we try and bring this episode in for a safe landing, (laughs) I thought I'd just mention again that I'm not trying to pick theological fights in our modern day. What I am trying to do, though, is point out that some of the passages that we have determined fit nicely into our preconceived notions of theology might not be speaking to what we think they're speaking to at all. When we grab something out of an ancient context and bring it directly into our context and then claim that it's speaking directly to our context first and foremost without fully investigating the original context into which it was written, we do damage to the text. So I'm not trying to say that the Calvinists are wrong or the Arminians are wrong. That's not my argument at all in this episode. My argument is that I'm not sure We can go to Acts chapters 13 and 14 and take one statement out of that story, bring it into our situation in modern day, and use it as a linchpin for our theology that we believe the Bible is teaching. Now, I'm sure the Bible is teaching one way or the other on how people get saved, and I'm also sure that we might not have it exactly right in any of our theologies But I think we need to go back to the text and rethink some of the passages that we have assumed for decades. We think we know what they mean and how to apply them. To close today, I do have some statements to kind of balance things out from an Arminian perspective. So uh, they're going to favor more of a free will view of salvation. And this is from Bentz. It's out of his Acts commentary. It's a biblical commentary in the Wesleyan tradition. So he says this, Where does God's predestination end and human free will begin? This question receives quite different answers from people on both ends of the theological spectrum. People on both sides have a difficult time supporting their answers from Scripture. Who's right? Those who lean towards human free will, called Arminians, or those who lean towards the sovereignty of God, called Calvinists? When a question arises in Bible study, it's, of course, best to look for answers in Scripture. The best place to start? Right where the question arises. What insight can we find in the account? So that from Bent's fairly good thoughts there, right? Putting us back towards Scripture, maybe rethinking the content that we are reading in Scripture and how to apply it. It continues to fascinate me how entrenched we get in our modern doctrines. And what would it take to cause us to think outside of those small little boxes? We so want the text to be speaking directly to our day and our circumstances and our debates that we are often unable to consider the circumstances into which they were originally written. God was certainly at work through the preaching of Paul, but to assume that no one is saved before he arrives is reductionistic, and it flies in the face of biblical descriptions. It seems like Paul is distinguishing a god-fearing group of gentiles throughout his message. We can go back to Acts 13:16, verse 26, verse 43, where he describes a god-fearing believing group of gentiles along the way. And it's through that faith that they would have already been appointed to eternal life. Well, I think I've poked enough bears in this episode to keep me on the run for quite a while. So until the next episode, I'll just leave you with this. If those listening to Paul that day had been appointed through past faith and they believed in the updated message that Paul was presenting, wouldn't that also fit the grammar of the passage? This wouldn't be a believing unto justification, but rather a sanctifying step of an existing faith. And it's just one more example of a context that isn't examined very often in our modern day. In the next episode, we'll take a look at Paul's visit back to Jerusalem between his first and second journeys. It's where the church leadership meets to discuss some important things concerning the spread of the gospel in the Gentile world. Thanks again for listening and I really do appreciate your time. So, I've decided just to say this this one time here at the end. I'd really appreciate it if you would consider rating, reviewing and even recommending to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.